The Pilbara Killings by Sabine T. Shetland, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 18 An hour after sending the email from his office, Monroe was at home sitting with his wife on his front veranda, sucking on a decent Cohiba cigar. Well, why not, he thought. It wasn't like it was going to kill him. He called Zimmerman, who answered wide awake. Mad as a cut-glass hose, the crawling words of a nutcase. He even taunts us in the second diatribe about how no one in his church even noticed when he had reincarnated himself as a new priest. If you can wade through all the theological bullshit, there are a couple of perfectly good confessions in there. Even a psychotic can own up properly when called upon. But his mind wandered back to the two little children, one too young to even comprehend a cleric's advances, and the other in the wrong place at the wrong time. What a waste, and the sadness that a full-throated lunatic could justify their deaths by singing of miracles or hiding amongst cassocks. It made him sick, and he needed to fashion a narrative for Champion and Kiriglu, and then another entirely different one for Marinda if she was still willing to talk to him. He'd warned her at the outset that it would be the story that would be the key to closing off this thing, and now it seemed as if it would be the story of that story. The chance to render it as straight as he could, so she could live with it from then on. Something that would make some sense for her, no matter how senseless, and that would do little Lisa proud. The thought that any parent would hope that their child coming up against something so frightening would firmly hold up against blind savagery that could pick up any small girl in its wake and toss her onto a pile of other children almost without any resistance. A chance to put pay to that pathetic kind of thing he had seen in those flickering emblematic images of the Holocaust, watching the bodies of his own people so passively tumbling one on top of the other. He hoped for something in the violent anonymity of her death that could make her seem like a little girl again, someone with a name and a face, sanctity amongst the profane. He closed his laptop, but there was no sleeping. The goodbye said to the carabinieri and the cheek-against-cheek cheek fresh air kisses made to Cinzia Bravini. They rounded back to Fiumicino Airport, past the imposing Vittorio Manuela monument, its solid columns standing aloof in the criss-cross of roads, this time all leading out of Rome. Who knew what the bishop would do, or of the insanities of the killer trapped but not caught? Zimmerman pulled out his dictaphone and started his rambling report, with the interruptions of his team at the many places of confusion, and by the Wallace woman at a point of law. As you know, there's no extradition treaty between Australia and the Vatican, but in any event, I don't imagine that our foreign ministry would feel comfortable pushing the Office of Public Prosecutions to charge him. She rattled on in her smart suit and slipped up and down as the taxi rumbled against the cobblestones of the older roads. An ambassador sits in Vatican City but has never been called upon to do anything, nothing more than big lunches and greetings to the new popes. It's like an honour system, really. If Teddy feels sufficiently aggrieved, he will most likely never come out of his hole. The humiliation, you see. His sin is that of omission, that and holding up the sanctity of the confessional. Are you defending him, then? Zimmerman seemed unable to fathom the flippancy of a simple absolution 
for the most terrible crimes. Well, Moore being his paper defence lawyer, it is what I would plead if it ever came to that. But it never will. Families will camp out in demonstration, but they too will fade. Ahmed added his two cents worth. I do not think that it is as easy as you suggest. We live in different times. In our Sharia law, nothing fades. Vengeance is a powerful directing impulse. The vengeance of Agnes Armitage and Mikos Inglesos, Zimmerman was becoming annoyed, and moral states that can have you sitting in a cubicle to utter some Hail Mary and be done with it is something that I can never understand. That's something we as a people do not have, and I thank God for that. Zimmerman smiled at the Iranian, and they both high-fived. If each of us are sinners, then there must be ways of ridding yourself of it. But this is all too easy, piped up Hartrick, as the cab lumbered through the side streets towards the Roma Termini train station. The rush of people pushed past them all in a wave and separated them temporarily from one another with the sheer human tide. Dusk was upon them and the flower sellers were packing up, lopping off the wilted heads of tulips and intoning those within earshot that everything was now half price. Home soon. Most of them on the long flight slept or played cards or watched the reruns of Mr Bean on their individual sets. Zimmerman was used to writing reports on planes, focusing under the sharp light over his pull-down table whilst nodding heads wrapped up in their blow-up pillows pushed against his shoulders in the confines of the economy seats. But it didn't come as easily as other reports, and his mind kept wandering to Marinda. They were let out to stretch their legs in Dubai and look through the glass at the monumental Burj Khalifa spire and all the robed men on cell phones, their kefirs flapping off their heads in the dry wind. He bought them all a coffee and mementos of inappropriate glass cones with shakeable confetti. The Wallace woman looked particularly pleased with herself. Just made partner, she said, with a self-satisfied air, keying a reply into her smartphone. She bristled with the arrogance of someone knowing something long overdue that others seemingly had not noticed. What is it that you do exactly, he asked. Ecclesiastical law. I sit on all those courts that probably should be defunct, the ones where there's no real law practised and presided over by those who know it even less. Ecclesiastical courts, naval and military tribunals, the dental and medical councils, places like that. She laughed, our own version of the Sharia. They both laughed out loud, and even the more voluble of the Emiratis turned around. No, nothing's going to happen to Shistov now, she said. Kiriglu saw to that. I had advised his grace before you ever caught up with him in Alberobello. I phoned him the night before. A little insurance if Signor Bertani ever wavered. I was just there to see that neither of them got into a tangle. Quite funny, actually, watching you chase the bishop through the Pugliese streets like some animal in the Kalahari. We have little interest in the Jeffreys case, even though the Premier expects your report. It isn't, after all, the outcome we were hoping for. Zimmerman was disconsolate. Both investigations not shelved exactly, but sublimated. What the fuck, he asked in astonishment. A portly security man came up to him to quietly whisper an admonishment, and the brooding Arab families with their overlain airport trolleys glowered away in disapproval. Life goes on, Zimmerman, life goes on, my son. And she gave him a smile only a lawyer could pull off. They left each other pointing off in different directions at the arrivals hall. 
Ahmed greeted by his wife, and Hartrick catching a lift from family friends. Wallace went up to Amanda holding her printed name on a cardboard square, and Zimmerman watched her get into the back of a Hummer with state government plates. The man inside seemed pleased to see her, but he couldn't quite make him out. As usual, Zimmerman was left alone, and slipping his carry-all bag over his shoulders, he caught the shuttle bus into town. Despite the revelation of his investigation being sabotaged from within and without, he slept surprisingly well. In the morning, pouring out the filter coffee with one hand, he tripped off the phone messages that he had forgotten to check the night before with the other. Three from Marinda altogether. One from Monroe, one from Atwood, and one from the head nurse at the Dampier General. He ignored them all and called Laura. She couldn't see him. A new boyfriend. Yes, quite sudden, really. The law wasn't for her, and she told him that she was developing a new website or app or some such thing from home. He filled her in with the details of the case he would be permitted to share, but she seemed disinterested. It had only been a few weeks, but she told him that she hoped he would have a nice life. Phone calls like that are so empty. After all, it was he who had initiated it, and she who had cut it short. Prick, he thought. Some women can definitely be pricks. He then called Barnes, who was more receptive, and listened with intent about the Italian trip. <clears throat> He'd like to get his hands on the diary pages, if only to highlight the workings of a mad brain. That might make a nice summer piece. Maybe another Walkley and a way back in. But even he too cooled off lukewarm on the whole thing, making much hay in the papers. The appetite for Catholic sleaze has its limits, he said. Nice copy with each case who's been buggered, but after you've run through that, no one really wants to know. They don't give much of a fuck about Teddy anymore either, Aidan. Just the pleasure of screwing with his plans is always enough. The great joy about pulling one of them down. But once he's on the floor, no need to put the boot in, right? The nurse at the hospital was not there, but he had left a message that old Ince had had a rocky course after his amputation, what with confusion and a short but comfortable stay in their tiny intensive care unit. A little pneumonia, but gradually on the mend. He was fit enough to be interviewed again. And Atwood thought it might be nice to have Zimmerman over for lunch. After that he called Monroe to hear an agreeable and a real voice. He sounded more fragile than usual and laboured in his breathing. Even near the end he stayed on the phone to get up to speed. Zimmerman invited him to meet with Champion, but he was really too ill. And did Zimmerman know that Monroe had put his name forward as the lead DI who should take over his place as commander? The recommended promotion would surely irk both Champion and Kiriglu, but there was no one else of such seniority, and they would simply have no other options unless they went outside the precinct entirely. Well done, my boy, and he coughed violently. Before checking in, I need to pop back to the Pilbara, see Ince and update the Jeffreys clan, finish my report. And maybe pork a young lady up there? I may be dying, but I'm not blind or deaf. I have my sources. If the investigation is nearing an end, who would begrudge you? It was a tolerant, sanctioning advice from a brother that ignored the obvious conflicts of interest. But all fraternal advice, he thought, is worth listening to. At least his frequent flyer miles were racking up. He watched the long, white-painted sign of the Tailspin Hotel on its roof as they swung past the surrounding hills that ringed the approach to the landing strip. He knew the small, corrugated iron buildings at the end of the Karatha runway, like the back of his hand, 
and would count the rungs on each in an obsessive, compulsive manner as they taxied the twin-engine Fokker into the hangar. There was no one there to greet him this time, and he would surprise Marinda. He drove past Nan Curvis's house and brought him up to date over a rich black coffee and the best part of a half-loaf of his wife's damper. As he rounded the Jeffrey Street, she ran out to greet him, her face lit up with the hope that all had not been wasted, and he grasped her around the midriff, pulling her towards him and planting a long, soft kiss full on her warm lips. They walked back into the house, holding hands as young lovers are supposed to, and she put on the kettle, pulling at the fabric of his shirt to hold him within range, as is the habit of those uncertain of their path without the presence of the other. There was a sudden familiarity that made her feel much better about things, and not a word more was spoken until they went to bed. The comfort of silence let her know that it would all work out just as she had planned. The next morning was one at his laptop, writing and revising his report. The blueprint style left little room for variation, and each section was rigorously filled into the letter in accordance with the rules. The rundown of dates and witness depositions, which officers had been at what interviews and their ranks, and the transposition of his dictaphone notes onto paper, confirmation of their sworn testimonies, inclusion of the coroner's reports, the legal admonitions, the refusals of testimony to certain questions by Teddy, and the listening, the listing of material pieces of evidence, all annotated and succinctly included. She called him to the bed and they made love one more time before he went back to the airport to pick up the chopper to Dampier. The commissioner no doubt would rebuke him for the cost of the flights. Ince was sitting up looking quite reasonable and playing with a spoon hitting hard at the top of a cooked egg. He turned and gave Zimmerman a recognition nod, mouthing words with his lips that would not come. The bedsheet was lifted up and his half-limb sat resting on a small pillow under a wire frame with him pointing out where it used to be. They sat for hours as if both had all the time in the world and went at some attempt at communicating. It was painfully slow as Zimmerman formulated his questions for the yes-no answers. Like Monroe, he was obliged to construct an agreed account of events. Question, what are the payments into his account? Answer, he had been paid those two sums by the church and had never seen Andrews, so he could not say if Quatermain and he were the same man. And as for Quatermain, he was a man of God, but he had weaknesses of the flesh, a liking for the boys. It was well known amongst his circle and his church elders. Question. But why had nothing been done? Answer. Everything had been done, Ince told him. We had all prayed ceaselessly for him. He had heard the voices he spelled out, all in his head. The love of God that placed him in such proximity to the company of small boys. Question. And what were the payments for? Answer. Monies to dispose of the children, not so much dispose as display, to imitate the Aboriginal customs. It was Ince's idea. He had read of them in the old spirit stories, and it would throw off suspicions. Question. And how could he have joined himself to this monster? Answer. He didn't see it that way. A man of God with temporary lapses of control. A good man, tormented by the noises in his mind. Question, and of the savagery he had witnessed, answer, he had not seen the acts, only their aftermath, the product 
of a demonic possession. Zimmerman was hoping to entrap Ince in the lie of the priest's demise. Question, and where is Quatermain now? Answer, dead, dead. He spelled out the words with a strong-armed finality, but it was clear that he did not know of any possible alternative. At the end, Ince asked about his daughter, but Zimmerman had no answers for him. He landed late into the deep, rich blackness of a cloudless sky, tessellated with a smattering of stars. He was tired from all that non-talking with Ince. There would be no keen energy within the department, either for his persecution or prosecution, given his physical state. A half-man, an accessory to crimes on whom some prison lesson would probably be wasted. He had a headache, and when he got home, Marinda soothed him with a rinsed-out washcloth rubbing him over his face like he was a child. Chapter 19 Champion was late again, pressed outside in front of the entrance to the bullet by a closing phalanx of clicking media. Bragging once more about his record in cleaning up corruption in the force, he ran up the last few flights of stairs, breathlessly proving his fitness to the world. I've read your report, Zimmerman. It's a bit of Swiss cheese, isn't it? He sat down amongst his papers in a place of safety and beckoned Zimmerman to also take a seat. You sent along that woman to nobble anything we found, didn't you? I don't appreciate being tagged like that in my investigation, Zimmerman said in anger. Listen here, son. First of all, it isn't your investigation. You'll fucking take your lumps and like it. She was Kiriglu's idea. He and Shistoff are as tight as a miser's ass. She was there so that old Teddy didn't incriminate himself. We couldn't rely on any Swiss lawyer either. We had to cover it for Teddy's protection. And what of Parliament and all the people on Chancery Lawn? Oh, they'll go away. I've told you before, both groups don't know what they want, and certainly the crowds will all disperse. It's happening now. Switch on your television, old boy. The families of the little buggeries will get their money. Maybe not quite as much as they hoped for, but plenty nevertheless. Enough. Everything will be sweet, and we can all move on. He got out of his chair and circled around Zimmerman, placing his hand on the back of his shoulder. And as for that other matter, those nasty little killings up north, I was interested at first, as you know from our last meeting, that everything sort of changed when you threw that rosary on my desk and explained its significance. If truth be told, my enthusiasm to prosecute has fallen away. There's enough for the church to be going on with right now. We don't need anything more. He patted Zimmerman on the shoulder to emphasise his position. I'm sure you understand. I can't have an archbishop implicated in something like that. Hiding a paedophile or two is one thing, but shielding a killer is something else. The final admission came in a whisper. You were never expected to get this far anyway. Champion had resolved in Zimmerman's mind why a forensics man was working on a homicide case in the first place, and with such an inexpert team. Any questions were now rhetorical and seemed desperate. He needn't have bothered. Don't you want this thing cleared up, sir? I mean... Couldn't you give a flying fuck about the people involved at all? Their families? Don't you raise your voice to me in my office like that. He was flushed and frowning and a large vessel on his forehead was pulsating. He softened a little and spoke in a gentle whisper as if they were the closest friends. Look, who gives a shit about a couple of Aboriginal deaths anyway? We weathered the commission for Christ's sake and that was plenty more and plenty worse. Look at what it birthed, all the nice social work programs and liaison committees, the rehab centres, they got what they wanted, didn't they? There's no need to ice the KK. 
If you'd found some psychotic prick, that would have been perfectly fine. But not a deranged priest, and certainly not now. Look at what it's done to St. Joseph's. Gates closed these last few months, revenues down to the lowest that I can remember, schools in jeopardy. We can't have it anymore. Oh, yeah, all the kids of your golfing buddies with no university to go to. It's tragic. The Commissioner smiled. Come on, Zimmerman, I admit that we haven't seen eye to eye on most things, but I don't give a shit what you think we owe you. I mean, you people think you're so entitled, don't you? You mean us Jews, don't you, sir? You know precisely what I mean. I shouldn't have to spell it out for you. The way things are around here, if the press got hold of this, that would be the end of it. Or more likely, there'd never be any end. As it is, they're sniffing around it. It takes all my strength to hold them off. Your stuff is all circumstantial anyway, and with two dead priests, there's only some speculative nonsense. He sat down with a loud sigh. Look, I'm no bleeding heart liberal, and I had to pull myself up by the bootstraps to get to where I am. I expect nothing less of anyone else around this joint. There's plenty of room for people like that. You get my drift? And you can make your name on something else, right? At any rate, we're getting off topic. If the topic was not giving a shit about little Lisa or Clint, he was right on point. But there was no shifting him. The case would die under its own weight, and there would be no more resources from his office for the department to continue its investigation. Champion also reminded him that if he thought all those flights crisscrossing half the world had gone unnoticed, he'd better think again. And Kirigul's task is far more worse than mine, he told him, choosing a new bishop, listening to those stories of drivel from the laity communities. I feel sorry for him, sifting out the clowns and the namby-pambies. Still, someone's got to do it. And just like that, it was, at least for him, over. Not even a coffee. The commissioner grabbed him by the arm as Zimmerman was leaving. Oh, I almost forgot. Congratulations, Commander. I see that Chief Monroe is pretty fucked and you're next in line. But being next in line means towing it, right? He had a choice just then and there of telling him to stick his promotion up his hole or to roll onto his back for a little tickle. He was in no mood for a fight, and his lesser angels prevailed. Right, sir. Champion opened up a broad smile right at that moment. Nothing, it seemed, could have made him happier. The appointment with Kiriglu was cancelled. Typical. Nothing more to say now that the Commissioner had closed down the investigation. Doubtless the Wallace woman would have told him all she knew, and Kiriglu need not now soil his hands. Zimmerman went to Monroe's house instead, and they sat out in the warm sunshine, watching the birds in the back garden. Try this armagnac, said Monroe, who called him to the decanter. It'll tickle the back of your throat, Aidan. It's just what you need, Commander. A hell of a nice bloke indeed. But he was right. It tickled the back of Zimmerman's throat just fine. Chapter 20 it was not like the whole thing went away exactly. There was still the testimony to a parliamentary subcommittee on sexual abuse within the church, and Zimmerman and his team would need to prepare. Gathering evidence and securing witnesses was occupying most of his efforts, but in it all the murders of the two little children had become sublimated. He thought how police work could sometimes mean carrying out a load of crap and then having to forget about it forgetting about all those guilty shitheads whose smarmy briefs got them off and really forgetting about those poor cunts who had nothing to do with anything, languishing and stir often for no reason. But it was mostly forgetting about secrets. 
those complex, dark things no one has a right to know about you or anyone else. After all, they weren't secrets if everyone on earth knew about them, were they? Let people speculate about what they want, he thought. It's what they can prove, right? Without that, it just didn't happen. He was gently easing into Champion's world, but still offering a little resistance. Even if there was no case left, there was a residual needling. It bothered him, the frailty of it all. To not know people at all who might one day be the most caring and compassionate, and then the next some ungodly monster. It mattered. He looked it up. A word he didn't know in Quarterman's diary. The Zizania. The grass of Palestine. A pervasive weed that looks exactly like a sheaf of wheat until one peers closely at its head. The impression of something normal until at the last minute it comes out to strangle its neighbours. To grow wild until in the finish it was impossible to tell the wheat from the weed. He went to Mandelstam in search of the Zizania. When he got there, he looked the rabbi fair and square in the eye, really looked at him, like there was something to see in his face that would have etched out all the moral lines, some explanatory sign for all that evil that the questionable Andrews or the audacious Quarterman had possibly have wrought. But he had little to offer as a visible mark. It's in here and here, he said, pointing first to his heart and then to his head. The Jewish scribes had been no different to those Laura had told him Roxborough had invoked. First the evil would generate in one's heart and only then infect the head. But there was something missing to all of this. Pure madness he could fathom, but not this switch-on, switch-off thing that would have made AQ or QA seem so normal as to appear entirely banal. Evil, at least, in Zimmerman's mind could only manifest as would the serial killer, and both by rights in their separate genesis should be obedient to some sort of basic rules. It was the discussion he had mulled over with the effusive Dr Masters. Evil, if it was there at all, could only be recognised if it stood out, and not by how indistinguishable it had become. And I don't want to hear what your commentaries would say, your Rashi and your Maimonides. I want to hear what you think of it all. I mean, where was your God in all of this? Zimmerman felt like he should fight for little Lisa. That's such a stupid question, Mandelson replied. Without evil, there is no God. One could not exist to separate itself from the other if there were nothing to compare it with. As Asinine is asking what came before the start of the universe or what lies outside, these questions are surely meaningless. For a religious man, he had made a remarkable secular argument. But for a secular man, listening to his explanations with all his agnostic intentions, there was nothing for Zimmerman to believe in, and nothing to recognise. I cannot explain it. I do not stand in judgment or try to dissect its path. But that cannot be good enough, Rabbi. If it sits in no place whatsoever, there's nothing to recognise its wrongness. We, after all, invented the rules, didn't we? The Decalogue that he had strapped to her feet first had our fingerprints on it before all those others came along to cleave off their gods of the sun and the harvest. Surely we, of all people, should have something to say on this. Zimmerman seemed incredulous, and it was the second time that week that he had allowed himself to become so angry. Well, there it is in the commentary that you so despise. It's not so much the law, but its meaning here. If it is evil, accept it as it is, as you would accept the law. 
and strive to live your life differently. Our greatest interpreters of the law were still there to carry it out, not to question where it came from. Mandelstam had wrapped him up again in allegory and shown him nothing of the original. He wondered what AQ or QA would have made of this, but he knew that it takes a sane man to recognise his own insanity. He let the Chabad house to the sound of the big iron door closing and the shock of a hot Indian summer night beating him about the face and chest. It was like he'd left the land of Oz and was winging his way back to canvas. Marinda had come down to stay with Zimmerman, with Arthur alongside and bringing her favourite clothes. In anticipation, he had placed small labels on some cupboard drawers with her name on them. It was a sweet gesture and nothing he'd ever done before for any other woman. A small sacrifice, but it signalled a permanence. She could stay with her own imperialised territory. A week later, they went to the Atwood home for lunch, Marinda on his arm and introduced as his squeeze. Pasta Primavera. The wine flowed and the eats piled high were plentiful as Vivaldi softly whisked its way from the CD player through into the living room and out onto the front veranda where they lounged, stuffed after a hearty feed. Atwood asked about the wash-up of the investigation and Zimmerman pointed out that he had performed the post-mortem on Marinda's child. In her presence he tried to temper the talk. Case closed, as you most certainly know, Herb. Two and two connected, Atwood toned down his rhetoric and apologised, but she waved him away and said that it was all right. They each made a joke about her gaining a new child, and Zimmerman placed his head in her lap in deference. Everyone laughed. Something good, at least, had come of it. She realised they could not censor themselves, and the conversation would inevitably turn to painful truths about little Lisa. So she went outside into the garden a small Quantro in her hand, well out of earshot. I'm sorry, I certainly did not mean to upset her, Atwood lamented, but Zimmerman waved his concerns away. It seemed fair game for him now to ask old Atwood for his wisdom on what had been bothering him about the priest. He thought about it for quite a while as the room lay silent at the end of the music track. There were really two things, Atwood said, the first which may have seemed vile, was the essence of the man whose perverse love of boys had metamorphosed into the actions of a pederast. The history on this is quite vast, as you may know. First the Greeks and then the Romans, but it wasn't until Plato spoke against it that there was the genesis of his platonic love. The sexual had been confused and the love of the young boy of any age was one for the Greeks of an educated mentorship. For them it was a personal and an educative ideal. The poet Plutarch, I believe, said of the ancient Persians that they even recommended the practice. But somewhere along the line it became manifestly physical and debased. He emptied the carafe and swallowed down its last lees. The victims became the catamites, doomed to be sodomised by their mentors. Only your Jews and the Muslims prevented its spread. The Vatican pushed out its sacred orders, in theory barring any priest who canvasses such pederasty but it seemed to everyone so poorly enforced. He stood up and, stretching, splayed out his limbs in an angular fashion, like he was exercising before sitting down again and wrapping his long legs around one another. You'll like this, Aidan. Your Gospel of Matthew, which I quoted to you last time we met, is clear on this. Matthew again. 
He seemed a central figure, distorted by some and revered by others. In it, Jesus himself speaks highly of a centurion, and of his fondness for his slave, and of the erotic connection of the child, as if it was not only common in those times, but accepted. He even goes so far as to bless the relationship. So as explanation, I can vaguely understand the temptation of these men to exploit their companionships with young, impressionable boys. But the other sheer visceral disruption of a young woman's internal organs is beyond the pale, Zimmerman said with a sad resignation. Surely, Herb, the most deviant mind imaginable, can only do that if he completely distorts his impressions of the Bible. In answering, Atwood lapsed into a biblical quote, as was his habit. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and scratches away what was sown in his heart. Matthew again, old boy, I think you'll find. Jesus and the parable of the sower of seeds. Such seed will only grow healthy if it falls on the best of soils. So too, a little later on, the parable of the net, which is there to catch up the good fish and throw away the bad. And your point is, Professor? Zimmerman was already reining him in. It means we have a choice, to act one way or the other. The decision Aidan for murder is already there in the Bible, if someone like your priest was receptive to it. It's full of so many murders for the most absurd and disturbing of reasons. There it is reserved for those who worked on the Sabbath, for the woman who turns out not to have been a virgin at her wedding, for goodness sake. And of course for any man who had the love that dared not speak its name. Horrid death is the only sentence for all of them. So why not for a young girl who wandered in on his pederastic ideals? Madness or no, there is for the most deviant of minds some sanction in its pages. He was off again, but with that it was always worth hearing. Of the prophet Hosea too, that the peoples of Samaria would rebel against their God to fall upon the swords and dash their little ones into the ground, ripping their women open. Your priest listened to the words, but could not see the one who uttered them. If there's no fear of God, there's defiance of the most sacred of the laws. He even slapped the decalogue on it to show how much he could flagrantly disregard them. It's all right there in Matthew, I'm afraid, if anyone cared to read the signs. He poured himself a small sweet sherry and went to sit next to his wife. It wasn't his domain, but he couldn't help showing off drawing away from his professed expertise. You, after all, Aidan, are one of the people of the book, and yet you cannot understand this one. Even the maddest ones can find their solace inside. If he can so mangle and misinterpret the most basic rules of existence, they're no longer the moral code, do you see? Zimmerman seemed to follow. The idea that anything moral at all was just convention and agreement. Maybe there was nothing, he thought, with an immutable centre. Atwood was rounding up the evening. Well, that's my theory, old boy, and you can take it or leave it. It was getting late, and there comes a time in a meal when it runs its course and outlives its pace. They drove home in silence, and she switched off the light without a sound. They held each other most of the night, and the morning found Arthur snuggled in between them on his stomach, his arms sprawled over both. He crawled in in the middle of the night and set up camp. Marinda got up, collecting the paper and filling the dog's water bowl. She quickly got back into bed, fighting against an early coldness of a crisp morning 
and drew her icy feet against Zimmerman, waking him up with a start. He rubbed his eyes clean and she brought him some coffee. The sentinel fell open and there, on page seven, was catastrophe in the small one-pub Pilbara town of Wim Creek, a place up until then famous for its legends of an alcoholic camel that would come daily for its keg of beer and also for a sleepy python that lived in the pub's roof rafters in prime position over the bar. Now it would be known for something more. A murdered young Matu girl whose big toes were tied together. End.